Welcome to the Light Us Up podcast. I'm Kyla. And I'm Callie. And welcome to our first annual spooky episode. Spooky. (laughs) We were asked to do voice acting, but that's not going to happen. Oh, I forgot about that. Sorry, Allie. (laughs) What what am I even going to do? That's the most you just got out of me. Yeah. Um, So it's the weekend before Halloween, and we put on our Instagram story, we asked you guys what you wanted us to do for week before Halloween, and you guys chose Vancouver Island Ghost Stories. So I have a book here that we're going to be reading, well, I'm going to be reading, um, a two different ghost stories from and kyla doesn't know these stories i don't think you've ever heard of either of them before but well maybe one do you know any vancouver island ghost stories i don't think so okay there's one that's like a little bit famous that i've kind of already heard about before um but i don't know if that's just because i don't know why that would be (laughs) never mind it doesn't make sense (laughs) (laughs) disregard disregard i'm like wondering if i just heard it like at viu or something or maybe the one time i've been to the nanaimo museum i can't even remember Hmm. well i'm excited to hear them okay all right so i'm reading from the haunting in vancouver island supernatural encounters with the other side by shannon sin and he at the time of this publication which was in 2017. He was a creative writing student at VIU at Vancouver Island University. So this was, that's pretty cool that he was a student when he published this book. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, all right. So we're starting off. Uh, I like at the beginning, he puts a little dedication here to all the spirits of Vancouver Island, past, present, future. Oh, spooky. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so our first story tonight is the apparition of spring. This is located in Oak Bay. In the summer of 1936, Doris Gravelin was the young single mother of a five-year-old boy. Doris and the boy's father, Victor Raymond Gravelin, married on March 8, 1929, but the couple had been separated for two years. Victor had once worked as a sports writer for Victoria's Daily Colonist, but left for health reasons in 1934. Much later, writers Charles Lillard and Robin Skelton would assert that he was a mean-spirited drunk and that the health claim allowed him to save face. Whatever Whatever really happened, Doris and Victor split up the same year. Doris took their then three-year-old son and moved in with her parents. Despite the hardship, Victor and Doris were still in contact. Neither of them became involved with other people. Victor also lived with his parents. According to witnesses, his only ambition was to have Doris and his son back in his life. Some said he was willing to do anything to make that happen. In... This is a book in The April Ghosts of the Victoria Gulf Links. Charles Lillard and Robin Skelton reported that, according to gossip at the time, Victor, who had been winning his battle with the bottle, phoned 
phoned Doris and asked her to meet him. Some believed that they were going to get back together. Doris was last seen wearing a knitted dress, a blue coat with silver buttons, a gray hat, and white kidskin shoes. I looked that up. That's goat skin, not real kids. <laughs> kidskin. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, the last the last thing the popular Auburn haired woman said to anyone was, I'll be back in a while. It was already dark when she stepped out. According to the Daily Colonist, just one hour later, residents near the golf course reported hearing a scream sometime after nine o'clock. Lillard and Skelton claimed that the couple would often walk through Oak Bay's majestic golf course, sometimes taking a more scenic route along the ridge overlooking the ocean. On Sundays, they would go for tea at the Oak Bay Beach Hotel located on the other side of the course before making their way back. Walking out to Gonzales Point was an indirect, though more romantic, route to their destination. The water and mountain view was, and still is, especially stunning. In 1936, with less light pollution than today, the stars would have been clear and bright. At night, the grounds were peacefully removed from the lights and the sounds of the city. Tuesday, September 22nd, was the last time anyone saw either of them alive. This was the night of the autumn equinox, a detail I have never heard mentioned. It is a sacred time for some, going back to ancient Rome and the cult of the wood goddess Pomona. Pomona. Nowadays, neo-pagans celebrate the equinox as a festival of thanksgiving, claiming their traditions can be traced back to antiquity. In an unknowable world of spirits, this date might be more important than one might think. Doris's body was found the following Sunday near the seventh hole of the course. Clearly, she had been murdered. Foliage had been used to cover the young mother's body. Coroners later concluded that she had been strangled. There were marks on her throat and across her body. Her hat and coat were missing, and so were her shoes. Victor was nowhere to be found. For reasons no longer known, Doris Gravelin's body was sent to Seattle to be cremated. A month later, Victor was found tangled in some seaweed just off the shore, near to where Doris's body had been found, but closer to the ninth hole. Doris's missing kidskin shoes were found inside Victor's pocket. Her coat and hat were never recovered. No one knows what really happened, but the deaths were ruled a murder-suicide. It should have been a closed case, but the Victoria Golf Club, and Gonzales Point in particular, would forevermore be synonymous with murder, and soon with ghosts as well. The first sightings are said to have occurred shortly after, but the earliest account on record took place sometime before April of 1964, when it appeared in the Daily Colonist. A lone fisherman was casting from a boat near shore as the sun was setting. An inexplicable feeling of not being alone suddenly came over him. The man turned toward shore, to see a woman in old-fashioned clothing standing on the ridge above him. Immediately, he sensed something wasn't right. The woman was close, but she did not make eye contact. He would later say that he wondered why she looked so sad. She stared straight out to sea as if he wasn't there. Suddenly, the woman began to make her way down the ridge toward the water. She quickly moved. She moved quickly in his direction, but as she neared the beach, she disappeared. 
the fisherman claimed he saw her melt away. According to the April ghost of the Victoria golf links, the same woman had been seen walking across the golf course as well. In some cases where people reported feeling strange sensations, she would look toward them and make eye contact. What struck people as strange was the woman's old-fashioned attire at the affluent golf course. The spirit believed to be Doris Gravelin does not interact with people during the day. Her appearance at night, however, is quite different. In the dark, the apparition has been reported in a white wedding dress or as a source of light. She has been known to torment people, intentionally scaring them or chasing them away. Local folklore even goes as far as to claim that Doris Gravelin hates seeing couples together, and those that see her are cursed to never marry. Now, there's quite a few different accounts of seeing her apparition. Um, I don't know how many of them you want me to read, but I'll just start. A young man and woman reported spotting her one night in the mid-1960s. The teenagers had trespassed onto the golf course as a dare, as they'd both heard stories of the ghost. The couple had only walked a short distance before stopping dead in their tracks. A figure they believed to be Doris Gravelin appeared in front of them. She wore a dress, but her form was an illuminated gray color. She traveled with otherworldly grace. Her bare feet skated across the grass and over the rocky ledge without touching it. She moved with much more ease than a human, they were quoted as saying. The couple watched in disbelief as she headed towards Gonzales Point. They hadn't thought they would actually see the apparition. Frozen in place, they watched the woman as she stood looking out towards sea. Eventually, they left in fear, but only after watching her for several minutes. In the late 1960s, a larger group of teenagers snuck out onto the course in hopes of finding the lady. One of the girls later said an icy chill suddenly shrouded her as her surroundings became eerily silent. In front of her, the form of a semi-transparent woman appeared. She estimated that the woman stood less than five feet tall. No one but her had seen the apparition, but it was enough to convince the others to return a second night. This time they all saw her. At first, I thought I could see right through her, but after staring for a while, I realized she was opaque, claimed one of the witnesses. Another said that the features were hard to make out, but it was definitely a woman. After viewing, for her, viewing her for about five minutes, some of the teenagers started to get brave. They approached the woman, but she disappeared. When they turned around to leave, she suddenly reappeared behind them. The group fled in fear. According to the paper, another group of friends had a similar experience. One man became frightened of the apparition and tried to run away. Whatever direction he turned, however, the apparition was blocking his escape. He would literally say her whole body was, a sh was shadowy at the edges. She looked sad. My God, how sad she looked. The other witnesses watched in helplessness as the man tried to flee, but the woman kept disappearing and reappearing in front of him. Suddenly, she was gone. A human being cannot appear and disappear in different places in the twinkling of an eye, the same witness said. I know what I saw. I saw the ghost of the murdered girl. There's a lot more, a lot more people who've seen these. Um, I have one, two, three, 
three more. Should I read all of them? How long are they? A couple paragraphs each. That's not too bad. Okay. We're only reading a couple stories, right? Just the two. And this one's yeah. the longer one out of the two. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm enjoying this. Are you are I you think spooked? I really no, I'm not that spooked. I hope I'm a ghost that just torments people. Because I find that hilarious. Them. Just pops like, up. You may not marry. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not that, but I definitely hope I torment people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I really want to torment people personally. Uh, well, they're I mean, asking like, for it. They're looking for it. That's they true. They're like, the these people the are like, like, let's do it. Yeah. You go into a golf course at night, like you're obviously looking for her. You're not going there golfing. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. In the 1970s, two Victoria Daily Times reporters decided to seek out the apparition themselves. Neither of them expected to encounter anything. After a short stakeout, one of the men saw a swirling white mass close to the beach. They both tried to look at it through binoculars, but the form melted away. Just as quickly, they were embraced with a merciless chill that froze them to the bone. One of them claimed to see a light resembling a shooting star. Interestingly, others had reported seeing a ball of light as well. In many cases, witnesses hadn't even stepped onto the golf course when they saw the ghost. To a couple walking along Beach Drive, the apparition appeared as a beam of light. To the woman, it looked like a glowing female in a white sheet. The entity was so bright that the couple could see it a hundred yards off the side of the road, down close to the water. They later agreed that the presence radiated an eeriness that unsettled them both, but the man tried to downplay the incident, saying that it must have been lights from a building on the golf course. As they walked away, they kept looking back to see if it was still there. It was. The man and woman quickly shared the story with friends, who in turn told them of the golf course's ghost history. In a state of of partial disbelief, the young man returned to the course the next day, only to confirm that there'd never been a building at the spot where they'd seen the light. Neither of them had previous knowledge about the haunting. Two men drove along the lonely road toward Oak Bay Beach Hotel. As they pulled up to the first crosswalk, the driver noticed there was a young woman in a white dress standing at the side of the road. She was fixed in place with her head down. Long, dark hair covered her face. The driver stopped the car to let her cross. After an uncomfortable pause, she delicately made her way across the road and stepped into the darkness of the golf course. The men later agreed that the incident was strange. The driver pulled ahead and continued to drive. They had stopped talking. It was a short distance to the next crosswalk, where the 10th and 11th holes intersected. The man slowed to a stop. There, standing on the side of the road, was the same barefoot woman in a white dress. She stood stoically in place, but her eyes seemed to be fixed on the golf course across the road. The driver stopped once more to let her cross. It was a short distance to the next crosswalk where the 10th and 11th holes intersected. The man slowed to a stop. There, standing on the side of the road, was the same barefoot woman in a white dress. She stood stoically in place, but her eyes seemed to be fixed on the golf course across the road. The driver stopped once more to let her cross. The men began to feel a deep sense of terror as the woman in white moved across the road, 
unnatural and graceful at the same time. They sat open mouth for a long moment before quickly accelerating away. As they came to a third intersection closer to the hotel, the men were horrified to see the same woman standing at the side of the road waiting for the car to stop so she could cross. For God's sake, don't stop, the passenger yelled. The driver sped through the intersection without stopping. Neither man spoke about the incident for some time afterward. By the mid-1970s, the ghost had garnered many different names. The April Ghost, due to several springtime encounters. The Watcher, the Oak Bay Ghost, the Golf of Gorth, Go- the Ghost of Golf Course Point. There's a couple more. There's There's a medium who decided to stake out the golf course. I want to hear that one. Okay. The story had become so popular that Jean Kozakari, a mediumistic witch who would later write A Gathering of Ghosts with Robin Skelton, decided to investigate the haunting with a number of her associates. The first night, the group staked out the golf course. Three of them saw a white figure gliding over the grass. They described the illuminating person as moving in a smooth, yet not jerky way. A moment later, they began to second-guess themselves as the apparition had vanished. The group returned on another evening. It was a warm, windless summer night. An unusual cold wind suddenly howled and tugged at them as they stood as they got out of an unusual cold wind suddenly howled and tugged at them as soon as they got out of their vehicles. A pressing, terrifying, supernatural energy whipped up against them. One woman began to scream. They joined hands and formed a circle, chanting blessings into the night. During the attack, at least 40 cars drove by the rattled investigators. Three of the vehicle's headlights had illuminated an unnatural figure running through the grass. It later confused them why the other headlights had not. The ritual had shaken most of the group, so they returned to their cars. Kozukari said she felt her investigators gra- said one said she felt one of her investigators grab onto her hand. She later remembered thinking that whoever it was must have been terrified as the hand was cold as ice. Almost as soon as she had thought this, she noticed that all of the group was hurrying to the cars ahead of her and that she'd fallen behind. As she realizes the hand faded away. Ooh. That's freaky. That's freaky. During the 1980s, Bridget Skelton, the daughter of writer Robert Skelton, and a group of teenagers shakenly reported seeing Doris Gravelin as well. Later, several University of Victoria students also reported seeing her. Two more people in a car saw her along the same stretch of road. According to Robert Bellick in Ghosts, True Tales of Eerie Encounters, One of the most amazing accounts took place in 1998. During the month of October, the Old Cemetery Society of Victoria had been giving Halloween ghost tours. A bus drove groups of tourists around Victoria, showing them some of the city's sites that are reputed to be haunted. One of the stops, of course, was Victoria's Golf Club. The April ghost had become more popular than ever. Tour guide John Adams stood with his back to the course as he told the group the story of the haunting. Faces dropped, eyes went wide. People started to shift from side to side nervously. Adam finished telling the tale. He later told Bellick he was 
Disappointed, the group had appeared distracted while he was speaking. Baffled, he told them to head back to the bus. No one moved. We saw her, one of the tourists said. We saw the ghost. The group told Adams that a woman in a white dress had been gliding through the shrubs behind him. They described her as shimmering. Some of them were sure the sighting was a hoax set up by the old cemetery society. Adams convinced them this hadn't been the case. Many people have claimed to see the April Bride, but even so, there are questions that remain unanswered. If these are sightings of a restless spirit, as so many people believe, then why does she wear a white wedding dress at night and an old-fashioned suit during the day? Is she Doris Gravelin? The details seem to indicate she could be. If she is, why does she stare out to where Victor's body was found? Witnesses have said she looks like she is waiting for someone and appears sad. Has she forgiven him? One theory is that Victor wasn't the killer. If this is true, maybe she is upset the man she loved was blamed for her death. Either way, if this is Doris Gravelin, her heart must have been broken when she was killed. The phantom is able to interact with people, move from place to place, and can alter her appearance. Because there are so many claims, the apparition of Spring is Victoria's most famous ghost. There's even an urban legend about her. As seen in 2003 on the once popular TV show Creepy Canada, some believe she can be summoned, but for what purpose remains unclear. If a person is brave enough to go to the seventh tea at night, the apparition will appear. All that brave soul needs to do is ring the bell and wait. Whoa. I'm not going to that golf course. Never. I think that's so cool. Mm-hmm. Was that the one that you had heard of before? No. No, the next no. one is the one that I've heard of okay. before. Hmm. That's interesting that people see her in different outfits. Yeah, like at night versus during the day. Yeah, that's cool. Why? Very cool. I don't know why this doesn't freak me out at all. No? No. Maybe because it's not like somewhere that you've been? Maybe. I just find it more fascinating, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a lot different, like... If you were in that situation and you felt like that oh, ice cold yeah. chill and stuff, like that would be different. But I guess yeah, just like, reading I'm about it. Is... There. I think I'm no. really good at dissociating because I get scared easily. So I'm really good at like, yeah. <laughs> this is a book we're reading instead of actually thinking it's real, you know? Yeah. Okay. Story number two. Okay. So I have to preface this one by saying there is a trigger warning here. There is mention of crimes against a child. So if you are not comfortable with that, then skip ahead to like the last five minutes of this episode. Um, yeah, because... um, probably not the last five minutes because we'll tell our, our stories too. And it's, yeah, it mentions, like, should we say more specifically for a trigger warning or? Oh, like the like death it talks of a child. about death. So yeah, yeah, just so people know kind of what to expect i guess yeah and we'll put a timestamp in the timestamps in the description too yeah okay all right so this one is kanaka pete axe murderer nanaimo and newcastle island 
On December 4, 1868, at two o'clock in the morning, Peter Kakua. Kakua. Yeah. Kakua. It's like a, a Hawaiian. Not. Yeah, totally. <laughs> a Hawaiian. <laughs> okay. A Hawaiian Kanaka murdered his family with an axe. The victims included his wife, her parents, and his infant daughter. Peter was captured, tried, and hanged. With no one willing to claim his corpse, he was buried on a forested Nanaimo Park island. There are those who claim he still resides there. Colville had become Nanaimo, and the gold rush that brought so many people to Victoria had ended. The year before, Canada had become unified in a single governed body. It would still be another year, however, before Robert Dunsmere would find the coal vein that would make him rich. The coal mines in Nanaimo had brought First Nations workers from the North, Americans seeking employment from the South, and toilers from many other nations by ship. These included Pacific Islanders. The men brought to Vancouver Island from Hawaii were often referred to as Kanakas, which sometimes had a negative connotation but means free man in Polynesian. Kanaka Pete. Kanaka Pete by W.J. Illerbrun was published in the Hawaiian Journal of History in 1971. Heavily researched, it is the most detailed account of Kakua's murders and trial. Like many other Kanaka laborers, Peter had married a First Nations woman, Mary Kweon, I think it was her First Nations name, her Penelkit. Mary was from the Penelkit Nation, the same group who had killed Chief Zuhalen 14 years earlier. There's a story about Chief Zuhalen earlier in the book, so that's why I mentioned that. And if you guys want to hear more, maybe next year, we can talk about different ones. Um, at the time of her death, the couple had been married for six years. It had not been a peaceful marriage. Peter had already served a three-month hard labor sentence for a vicious assault on Mary. In spite of the marriage's difficulty, Mary had given birth to an infant daughter, whose name is no longer known, shortly before the murder. Many people tried to leave Peter in December of... Mary tried... I think I said many people. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> many people Mary... tried to leave him. Mary tried to leave Peter in December of 1868. Her parents, sorry, their names are First Nations names. Okay. Squashilik and Shilatinord had come to Nanaimo to bring her home. Peter was infuriated when he found out. He got drunk, returned to the small harbor cabin, and murdered everyone with an axe. The British colonists reported that the scene was a slaughterhouse. Court records indicate that his mother-in-law had been chopped in the back of the neck and that the baby's head was only com almost completely severed. That's terrible. The father had put up a fight and bit off one of Peter's fingers, but both he and Mary had still been hacked to death with the axe. Illerbrun writes in Kanaka Pete that Peter claimed he remembered none of it. His defense, as reported by the paper as well, was that he had woken up the next day to find the gory scene. Instead of turning himself in, he began to make plans to flee. He showed the crime scene to another Hawaiian man the following evening. 
The man was horrified and went off to seek the constable. He was unsuccessful until the following morning. By this time, Peter had paddled with another drunk to the far side of Newcastle Island. His plan had been to escape to the mainland, but the other man, a former American slave, had sobered up enough to protest. He did not know yet about the murders. The heavily forested and sparsely populated island offered the two men a place to stop away from prying eyes. They built a beach fire and continued to drink. It wasn't long before a search party spotted them. The group split in half. The first approached by canoe, while the second crept up on the men through the forest. Peter tried to escape, but was apprehended. Illibrin says he was brought back to Nanaimo and formally charged before being sent to Victoria for trial. He was then tried twice before separate juries as the judge had divided the murderers. The killing of his wife could possibly be perceived as a crime of passion, but the other deaths were considered a willful act. Peter claimed he was not guilty. His lawyers asked for leniency as he had not been raised Christian and did not understand the ways of the white man. This was a stretch as Peter had already lived on Vancouver Island for 14 years and Hawaiian immigrant murderers were not common. Most shameful of all was Peter's desperate attempt to put the blame on his wife and her family. He claimed that he had come home to find his Really? He had come home to find his wife having sex with her father in his bed. Oh. At best. <laughs> like, what? At best, it would be cavalier behavior for a woman terrified of her husband. It was also outrageous. It wouldn't explain Peter murdering his baby or attempting to flee either. It also directly contradicted his statements that he did not remember any of it. As unlikely as his defense was, the court seemed to take it into consideration. The first jury decided Peter was guilty of murdering Mary, but recommended mercy. The second jury found Peter guilty as well, but asked that no mercy be given. The defense had failed to convince them that Mary's mother was a threat, as her body had been found in a place suggesting she had been hiding from the killer. Peter was sent back to Nanaimo, where he was incarcerated in the HBC's Bastion Fort. The British colonists reported that he was hanged at 7 o'clock in the morning on February 10th, 1869, on a scaffold with a dozen steps from where he had been committed, where he had committed the crimes. Peter offered no last words and accepted his face, fate stoically. The executioner was an unnamed convict who would receive a pardon for pulling the switch. The people of Nanaimo, however, were presented with a dilemma. Neither the Penelicate nor the Sinemo wanted anything to do with the body. His defense of being non-Christian also prevented him from being laid to rest in any of the graveyards. It was decided he would be buried on Newcastle Island in the bay where he was captured, now called Kanaka Bay. By 1899, Newcastle Island had become a site to quarry sandstone and mine coal. In a bizarre incident, a group of coal workers accidentally dug Peter Kakua up. The Nanaimo oh. Free Press reported that men opened the box with not, not realizing it was a coffin. Instead, they found a skeleton wearing a pair of leather shoes still in good condition. The body could be oh. none other than that of the hangman. He was moved a short distance away and reburied where he was presumed to still be. 
like that is the worst thing you can do raise somebody from the grave like you're just asking for a spirit yeah. to stay and haunt people <laughs> it's terrifying <laughs> okay the most well-known sighting of peter kakoa's ghost took place sometime before 1890 by james hurst hawthorne thwaite a regional pol- political figure from 1901 to 1920 before he was married, Hawthorne Thwaite lived in an old cabin near the Bastion with Arthur Potts, an estate agent from another notable family. A story about the encounter was printed in 1958, years later, in The Daily Colonist. Mr. Potts woke up to what sounded like a fight taking place in the cabin. He ran into the living room to find Hawthorne Thwaite brandishing a fire poker. He asked Potts if he had seen where the First Nations man, covered in blood and holding an axe, had gone. The men searched the home but found nothing. Years later, Hawthorne Thwaite replayed, relayed the incident rather apologetically to the chief of police. The chief was surprised that Hawthorne Thwaite did not know that this was either the cabin where the murder had taken place or one nearby. Hawthorne Thwaite chose to keep the incident otherwise private, but a few people knew about the encounter, eventually making the story public. Bill Marylees in Newcastle Island, a place of discovery, says that stories of Peter Kakua's ghosts are often told to youth groups of brownies and Cub Scouts camping on the island. Marylees elaborated in 2013 on Shaw TV. Peter Kakua, he said, wanders the island at dusk looking for young people to scare. Other versions claim he kills them. Kanaka Bay is on the dark side of Newcastle Island, far from the lights of Nanaimo, moored boats, or campers tucked inside their sleeping bags. Those campers might hear a scream and far in the distance, but no one else would. The shadow of a large, hunched-over male moves slowly along the shore. His eyes are wide and unblinking, scanning side to side methodically, like a hunter's. His face wears a scowl. There is a long item in his hands. On one end is a dripping mess, on the other a clenching and unclenching fist. The shadow stops suddenly. He hunches over more deeply and moves cat-like towards his prey, one foot in front of the other with jerking certainty. The Bastion Fort across the harbor from Newcastle Island is also reportedly haunted. It's where Peter spent his last night. The old HBC structure was completed in 1854, the same year Chief Suhalen was killed. The settlers were concerned about large groups of Haida or Kwakwak. Sorry, this the name of this Kwakwakiwak is how I've been told to say it, but I don't know if that's correct. Kwakwakiwak. Okay. Raiders prowling the water. According to the Nanaimo Museum, a flotilla Flotilla? Is that how you say that? Flotilla? I have no idea. Flotilla? That would be like the English would be flotilla, but if it was a Spanish like word, it would be flotilla. flotilla. <laughs> Tortilla. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. A flotilla of Kwakwakiwak canoes entered the harbor <laughs> in 1855, causing residents to seek shelter inside the bastion, but no fighting took place. As the city grew, the protective structure became less and less necessary. It was almost demolished in 1891, but was saved and moved across the street. Thankfully, 
it was moved a short distance again in 1874 when that street was widened. Today, it is the only building of its kind left in North America. Wow. Some historians have claimed that Peter Kakua was hanged on Protection Island at Gallows Point because other historic hangings had taken place there. This is not true. Across the harbor from the Bastion, Gallows Point is a site where two men, one Cowichan and the other one Sunemu, were hanged in 1858. In This is a book. In Black Diamond City, Jan Peterson says the British ship, the Beaver, had tried them on board for murdering a shepherd near Saanich. Called Tidestaff Point then, Gallows Point was the most convenient place to administer justice. It is generally believed that at least one of the men was innocent. Uh, Gallows were constructed on the island near the ship, and the two men were executed. By the time Peter Kakua was hanged, this site wouldn't have been impractical, as it would have required boning materials and men from Nanaimo for construction, and then the prisoner and witnesses as well. Newspaper accounts confirm that Peter was executed in Nanaimo. An 1899 story in the British colonists said that the scaffold was close to the cabin where the murder took place, which was also somewhere near the bastion. The Nanaimo Museum released a statement in 2004 saying that the bastion was haunted. The claim was that tourists and staff had been reporting activity. Bill Poppy, I know this man, who had been a bagpiper for location for 19 years, said he had heard things being moved as well as footsteps above him when no one was there. The Bastion supervisor at the time, Jessica Krippendorf, stated she had heard whispering that stopped when she went to investigate. She had checked on a loud noise above her as well, only to discover that a nearly three kilogram or six pound cannonball had been moved out of its case and was rolling across the floor. Uh, Bill Poppy is, he still is bagpiping. He does a lot for local and Highland dancers. And um, two of my friends were Highland dancers. And he, and then Ryan's nieces did Highland dancing as well. And he was still bagpiping for them in mm. like, when did they quit? Like 2019, maybe 2020. Yeah. Um, okay. If the bastion is haunted and if spirits of the dead really do cause these types of occurrences, then my best guess would be that it's Peter Kakua. His apparition has been seen at least once in the neighborhood already. The murderer spent his last night in the bastion, was hung outside, the killings took near place nearby, and his remains weren't treated in a sacred way. All possible explanations for a haunting. Ooh. That's close. Yeah, and I, luckily, I didn't hear about that story until after I had camped on Newcastle Island, because uh, I don't think I could ever camp there again. No? So freaky. No, no, See, no, this no. stuff freaks you right out. It does, yeah. That's funny. It doesn't even phase me. I don't know why. Oh, man. Like, Ryan and I camped there one time, and we walked the entire island, and, like, I definitely got like a weird feeling when we were there. Like it didn't feel peaceful. Like it mm. felt like there was something always there in the bushes. And now I'm like, okay, this makes sense. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
just so creeped out. No. I'm the one reading it and I'm like, I've already read this and I'm still freaked out. It's so funny watching, like, I'm obviously watching you on video and I can see you, like, tense up when you say certain parts. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I hope you enjoyed. And those are only, like, two out of a whole bunch of hauntings and ghost stories and sightings on Vancouver Island. I mean, that's only one out of four in Nanaimo as well. Like, there's three other haunted places, areas of Nanaimo as well, which is... Yeah, there's the the Bevan House, right? Yes. And then you said the VAU Theater? Yeah, there's a theater ghost apparently there. And what's the other one? The old fire hall where the firehouse grill used to be. Ah. Yeah. Hmm. But I think that that one is a bit more calm and peaceful because it's firefighters who died in the line of action. So it's like, it wasn't, it wasn't like bad people. It was people who died helping others. So that was not so freaky. So they're probably just having a good old celebration. (laughs) exactly yes that's funny do you have any personal scary stories you want to share um well growing up so I never really like I don't have like one specific instance but when I was growing up a lot of times it's like at my parents house mom's place there the bathroom is at like the end of the hall and then straight down next to the fireplace, like, what is that? Probably 50 feet away kind of thing is a mm-hmm. window. And when I was a kid, like, I would be going to the bathroom at night with the door open. And I could see, like, down at the window. I don't know if it was inside the house or outside, but I would see, like, something run past. This is, like... It wasn't an animal. It looked like this is back when we didn't have a dog. So like it looked like a dog or yeah. like a child would run past. And I'd just Ooh. see it like out of the corner of my eye. And that would like that would frequently happen to me. And it I never really ever had anything happen outside. It was only ever inside the house that I would see mm. it. But I would definitely feel like, what was that? Or and would you see it because your bedroom was close to the bathroom, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So would you would yeah. see it running down the hallway? Like, would you see it from your bedroom kind of thing? No, like only when I was like in the bathroom and I would see oh. it run like past the window Oh, at the end of the I hall. So I it would see. like quickly come into my vision and out because oh. it would go because at the end of the hall, like you only have such a narrow view, right? Because the yeah. wall is in the way. Exactly. Yeah. Crazy. Ah, Crazy. And then, of course, we've had in this house, we've had that sound, that knocking sound that now you and I discovered like last week that we're pretty sure it's coming from outside somewhere else. But like it yes. definitely sounded like it was inside the house before. That we was here that actually random. scared me. Yeah. No, like that was freaky, that knocking. Somebody thinks mm-hmm. it's a jaw crusher from the gravel pit. And I was like, are they really working at like 10, 11 p.m. at night? Like, I don't understand. Yeah. And it's that not doesn't every make sense. night. Yeah. No, that doesn't make sense. And it was a Saturday night in the middle of the night. Yeah. Like, who's working at the gravel pit on a Saturday night? That's really weird. Yeah, that is really weird. 
but it's less freaky now that I know that it's not coming from inside our house. Because before yes. we'd only hear it when we were in the house, but now hearing it from there, I could tell it wasn't in our house. Yeah, exactly. But that did feel like spooky, haunted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounded like someone was outside, like right outside. Yeah. yeah. Ugh. Scary. What about you? Um, I have, I don't have any like ghost encounters or anything like that um I have a couple like weird things that have happened to me though in my life that I think now that I'm a bit more spiritual is related to that but I do have a Ouija board story that I'll tell so okay when I was this would have been around grade seven because it was elementary school age but like late um I was invited, I was hanging out with a friend and I was invited down to, um, there was a bunch of like guys we went to school with that lived near me. I can tell you the names after, but I'm not going to say names on here. Um, I was invited to go down to their house to try out this Ouija board. So there was two or three, there was three of them there. And then me and my friend went down together. So there was five of us all together we were using the Ouija board and of course like I'm I don't even know what these things are at this point like my friend did but I didn't and the whole time I'm like this is bullcrap like you guys are moving this there's no way that you're telling me this is the spirit world whatever but then what made me really like whoa was we did get in contact with a spirit that was actually my friend's family member. She said how she died. She said, like, she confirmed things, like her kids' names. She confirmed all of this. And the weird part was before she confirmed everything, the boys that we were with said, oh, we were doing this last night and connected with someone with the same name. This was her cause of death. This was her, like, these were her kids' names and whatever. And it was paid. I just about said her name, but my friend, it was my friend's aunt. That's crazy. And it was the same cause of death. And it was like all of her cousin's names. And then we kept confirming things. And she took her hands off because I'm like, I don't believe this. So she took her hands off and it was just me and the boys that had our hands on. And she was still confirming things that were true. And it was so so freaky. So So freaky. freaky. Wow. And yeah, just the fact that we were sitting there and that they were like, yeah, we did this last night. And it was this person. And like this is how she passed and whatever and Paige is like what I keep saying her name but she won't care she was like no what that's like that's my aunt's story so that was kind of spooky um then we became kind of excited about it I never got a Ouija board but we borrowed it from them and we brought it to my house and then we tried to use it in my room and then we got too scared and we're, I was yeah. like, I don't want to do this yep. in my bedroom. I don't want to do this here. So I ended up taking it back. But anyways, that's the only time I've ever used anything like that was then. But as for, I guess mine are more spirit world stories, but there's been multiple occasions where, especially when I'm sick, because they always say 
that when you're sick the or something's going on that the veil is thinner to like the supernatural yeah. side like the spirit world um so when i'm sick i often see things and this has been like this since i was a kid i remember a specific moment where my mom and i were driving on the highway to go home and I jumped in my seat. I was in the passenger seat and I jumped. I was sick. I just had a cold, but it was like a decent cold. And I jumped in my seat and like held on. And she's like, what was that? And I said, a raccoon just jumped out onto the road. And like, I saw the raccoon's beady eyes from the headlights. And wow. it, it, was, it was so like, apparent and so clear that it made me jump and she's like there was nothing there nothing that's so freaky because we would have hit it if if it was actually the case we would have hit it and then um there's been other times where yeah i'm when i'm sick all just shadows and things moving in my peripheral vision that kind of thing and then i think it was last year when i was really really starting my spiritual journey and experimenting with energy and all of that that I started to wake up every night at three o'clock in the morning and it was between like it was between like 10 to 3 and 15 that's that's it that's when they say the veil is is at its thinnest and I'd every single night wake up at that time and there were some nights where I'd wake up and I could just feel like I felt like I was vibrating it was unreal and it it didn't necessarily scare me but it was like what is going on and there was a couple times where I would do it and I'd wake up and then as I was falling asleep it's like I could hear voices in my head that was it ended up being my grandma my grandma's voice and I hear it's like she was there talking to me that's how clear it was and it was so clearly in her voice like when they say that I don't know are you the type of person like can you think thoughts in your head and like hear your voice when you think them um do you know what I mean like do you have a voice inside your head yeah, like I, I just did it. And yeah, I yeah. Hear there voice. Are yeah. Apparently, people that don't. And There's also apparently people who can't like think visually either. Like they yeah. can't like think it with pictures. And I'm like, how? I'm more like that. Mm. I can't really see pictures, but I can hear. Um, like I can think in my own voice, kind of thing. So. Yeah, I mean, when you think in your head, you think in your own voice. This was not in my voice. It was in her voice, which was really weird to me. But those are kind of my main weird things. And then I, at that point, was, again, practicing more spiritual stuff. So it was like I knew how to block that energy or not block, but protect myself with it yeah because I didn't want to necessarily make it go away because I thought it was kind of cool but I also wanted to make sure that there was nothing negative that was going to come about so I just found ways to like protect it but yeah those are kind of my I guess spooky but cool encounters 
Okay, I completely forgot that in high school I used a Ouija board as well. Did you? Yeah, so we, I was at a friend's house for like a party, sleepover or whatever. And, but there was like, it was early enough in the evening that we still had like the guys over and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And so there was four of us who decided that we were going to use the Ouija board. And then one girl had to leave the room. She's like, I'm not staying for this. And then everybody else was just watching. And so I think it was two guys, two girls, we were using the planchette. And so we were like open to the board and whatnot. And we were talking and, and asking questions and we're like saying like, have you, have any of us ever encountered you before? And I said, yes. And we're like, can you say who's encountered you? And we like start, it starts moving and it spells out a name. And I'm like, what? Because I'm not good at like spelling letter by letter like that. I'm like, what? Yeah. I'm like, what the heck does that spell? And then somebody's like, that spells blank's name. And we look over at him and he's just staring at us like wide eyed, like <laughs> what? <laughs> Freaked out. And I was like, okay, well, I didn't help spell this because I couldn't even spell it out. Like I didn't even know. Yeah. And we like asked some more questions as well. I mean, like, are you like a good spirit versus bad spirit. And like, I don't think we could get a clear answer from that. And uh, it was just so freaky that we were like, have you made contact with somebody in the room? And it literally spelled out somebody in the room's name. And none of us were like, immediately knew whose name it was. Like we were all so shocked by it. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't think we ever used it after that again. We're like, we're done with this. And we returned yeah. it to who we borrowed it from. Um, That's funny. Uh, and then when you mentioned about like being sick and like like just when you're not completely in your headspace and the veil being thinner, I saved this because this happened and I wanted to tell you about it right away. But I was like, I know we're doing this episode, so I'm going to save it to tell you on the podcast. So back in August, I think, when Wesley was really sick, um, he had just like a really... Actually, I think he had the flu at that point in time because he had fevers on and off as well. Um, I was at work and I came home and Ryan told me that while I was at work, he had the baby monitor in here in the office and he could hear Wesley like moaning, like, uh, uh, uh. and Ryan's like, what is going on? And he like looks and he's just, he's like, he doesn't look like he's awake, but he's just moaning and like making so much noise. So Ryan went into Wesley's bedroom to see what was wrong and was like, Wesley, like Wesley. And he's just sta- sitting, laying there, staring. Uh, oh, uh, up at the corner in his room. And Ryan's like, puts his face like in front of him and is like, Wesley, Wesley, what's going on? Like, are you okay? Like, are you okay? And he's like rubbing his back and he's just all just like, uh, oh my god okay, so that's the scariest <laughs> story i've heard all night yeah and brian is like rubbing his back and is like are you okay bud like what's going on and he's still staring like through ryan up at this spot and ryan got to the point where he doesn't get freaked out by stuff like this he got scared he's like i don't want to look behind me because what am i going to see behind me oh my eventually gosh. he decided to look and there was nothing there yeah. But it's like, just because I didn't see it doesn't mean there wasn't anything there. Yeah. And then eventually he like shook Wesley like a little bit harder. And then Wesley like came to and started crying. Right. And then 
where he was able to like console him and he went back to sleep but like freaked me the f out that i would be so scared i wasn't even here but ryan ryan telling me and ryan being scared i was like that is something yeah because they say also children are way more susceptible Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. Uh, remind me to never go in your house again (laughs) (laughs) okay you can just pee in the yard when you come over yeah (laughs) um and then ryan like told me about it when i got home we were sitting here in the office and then we heard that knocking oh like what the fuck? Like freaking out because of it. Because we hear the knocking after that happened. But now yeah. the knocking doesn't freak me out so much. But wow. It was really scary. Yeah, that would I would be so scared. I'd be in tears. I would actually oh, I be honestly, in tears. I was like, you need to come upstairs with me right now because I need to go to bed, but I'm not going anywhere by myself. Yeah. I was like, I'm not leaving this room without you. And he was like, just go. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm not going anywhere without you. Yeah. Like, we need to be a team. Like, I don't oh, know I'd be in there the it. next day with Sage and anything that I could. <laughs> it's been, like, over two months, though, and nothing else has happened. Yeah. So it's like, wow. I don't know. I, I kind of think that maybe he was just, like, sleepwalking, kind of. Yeah, he's uncomfortable. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely could be it. But so could freaky. be something else. <laughs> Okay. Um, do you want to wrap up this episode with some gratitude or should we skip that for the spooky episode? Um, maybe. I don't know. I can't really think of anything I'm grateful for at this point. In time. You're so scared. Callie asked me at the beginning of this before we recorded. She's like, do you want to do, because we're recording two tonight. She's like, do you want to do the, the other one second? So we're not so freaked out. I'm not even scared right now. I could go to sleep. I'd be just fine. <laughs> I'm like, I need to turn on all the lights and I need to, I don't know, watch so a TV show for sure. Watch, did you ever watch scary movies? Oh, yes. Have you ever been into them? Yeah. Oh, I yeah. can't Big watch mistake, them though. now. Um, They no. scare me too much now. But when I was a teenager, I went to every single scary movie that came out. No, me too. Like, I loved, um, like, oh, I think the freakiest one ever I've seen is Insidious. Like, that one was yes. the worst. I, I don't know how I watched that now because no, I, I've seen that one more than once. I used to love, like, Paranormal Activity, all of those movies. Oh, yeah. Now, I can't even imagine putting it on. I would turn it off. No. Yeah, no. No. Ryan suggests, he's like, you want to watch a scary movie? I'm like, no, definitely not. 100% no. no. Yeah, hard pass, hard pass. I mean, we watched like the Final Destination the other night, and I was like, "That's about as scary as I can go," and that's not even really that scary. That's just like, yeah, that's just like predetermined death. That's no, there's no like spirits or anything. Just gory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that the spirit stuff is freaky in movies. Yeah, especially like Paranormal Activity, where it looks like it's real. Yes. Yeah. Ryan loves the Blair Witch Project. And I was like, this isn't even that scary. I haven't seen it. Oh, it's like like point of view filming. Like the whole thing oh. is like filmed with like a handheld camcorder kind of thing. Yeah. But when it came out, when it first came out, like Ryan saw it and like everybody, same as paranormal activity, paranormal activity, like everybody thought it was real. They thought yeah. that, that was truly it. Right. So 
understandable, but I don't think that one's that scary. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, well, maybe let's skip the gratitude and just call her call her an episode. I hope I everyone think has so. a really good happy or a really good Halloween. I was gonna say happy Halloween, but I don't need to say both. Happy Halloween. Uh, yeah. If you're going trick-or-treating, I think Charlie and I are going to go to a few houses. I have to get a costume for her, but I think we're going to oh, go to yeah. a few houses and hand out. We yeah. get so many trick-or-treaters because this neighborhood is perfect for kids. All the houses oh, yeah, are close flat. together. And yeah. Yeah. So we get so many. We get like the our neighbor counts because our neighbor and then mm. Charlie's daycare decorate like crazy for holidays. Oh, it's so much fun. And um, they always count how many kids. And I think last year was like 350 or something that they counted. Holy. Yeah, we get so a many. Lot. Yeah. Wow. We don't get any. There's no trick-or-treating in our neighborhood. We just no. go to the neighboring one. So. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. But um, I think we'll leave it off there for now. If you guys want to rate, review, follow, subscribe, whatever y'all want to call it. And you can also follow us on Instagram at L-U-U-P-O-D and keep the conversation going with us there. Tell us your spooky, scary stories. We would love that. And feel free to let us know what lights you up. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>